Sirius XM Radio is better with Bogle Wines. 70s on 7, 80s on 8, better with Bogle. Alt Nation, Hip Hop Nation, Hair Nation, better with Bogle. Madison, Howard, Andy Cohen, better, better, better. Y2 Country, Prime Country, Carrie's Country, yep, all better. The Beatles Channel is better, and getting better all the time. Everything on Sirius is better with Bogle. Award-winning, family-owned wines ranked as some of the finest available for around 10 bucks. As long as you're not driving, it's better with Bogle. Bogle Family Vineyards, Clarksburg, California. Please drink responsibly. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. This week, I'm talking to writer Eric Garcia. He's covered politics for a long time in Washington. And currently, he's the senior Washington correspondent for The Independent. In fact, when we recorded this week, Eric was sitting on the third floor of the Capitol building in D.C., waiting for the latest on the debt ceiling negotiations. Eric is autistic. And if that surprises you, well, it's not your fault. Our culture still holds on to a lot of stereotypes and myths about autism including the idea that Eric, as an autistic person with a real job and independent life, is high-functioning, whereas other autistic people might be low-functioning. I wanted to have Eric on the show to talk about these stereotypes and myths, and his first book out right now, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. He wrote it because, being both a reporter and autistic person, he was frustrated with how the media covered autism and how policy failures have been the result of misconceptions and stereotypes. Stay tuned for a conversation about the difference between curing autism and actually supporting autistic people. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I think... I want to start with um, the language about autism. All of us good liberals, we want to do people first. That's sort of the progressive trend. And that would be like a person with disabilities. Now, I know we alcoholics kind of reject that. Some of us do. I do. I don't want to be a person with a chemical dependency disorder. Like, I'm a drunk. You know, I'm a fucking alcoholic. Um, It's part of who I am. Talk about uh, the autistic community and how that discussion has been. Yeah, so this is a really important thing. I think that for a long time, parents and clinicians and social workers and people like that wanted to do person-first language uh, and thought that, well, we want you to see the person, not the disability, whereas a lot of autistic people now who've grown up have said that, no, we need you to see the disability. And more than seeing the disability, we need you to see that it is an inextricable part of who this person is. And I think that's why you've seen a push toward identity first language. At the same time, there are plenty of people in the intellectual disability community uh, so that's how you can have terms like an autistic person with an intellectual disability. So it varies, but like I think that tends to be the default language. How did this book come about, Eric? 
Good question. Um, I don't know if you know him. Do you know Tim Mack? I do. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So I was at a party. In editor of the Daily Beast or an editor at the Daily Beast. He used to be a yes. reporter of the Daily Beast. Now he's at NPR. Oh, okay. Uh, right. And what happened is I went to a party at his house and uh, he offered me a drink and I said, oh, I can't drink because the medicine I take because um, I'm autistic doesn't mix with alcohol. Later on, I kind of developed a drinking problem, but, you know, that's a story for another day. Um, but, uh, you know, he's and instead of him saying, oh, come on, have a drink, you know, he was like, oh, there's a lot of autistic people in Washington. You should write something about that. And I thought, you know, eh, you know, when I get better as a journalist and I was I was 24 at the time I was new to D.C. Uh, I was pretty happy as a reporter covering economics and politics, you know, that was what I was doing. And I, and I would have been happy to do that for the rest of my life. And I am happy to do that for the rest of my life. Then what happened was uh, I was working at National Journal at the time and uh, the print magazine was going to close. So I pitched this article about like what, because Tim was like, you should write something about what it's like to be autistic in DC. And because the, there's a lot of autistic people, kind of like a f- fun, chatty, kind of high society, you know what I mean? Like high society, kind of like the secret lives of autistic people in DC, those kind of pieces that the kind of this town kind of weird kind of pieces that like people like to, people just gobble up, like the kind of stuff that people read in the Politico playbook, um, you know, but uh, but but then like I pitched this piece to Richard Just and he was like, okay, why should this piece exist? And I said, well, I think we focus too much on trying to cure autistic people and not enough on trying to help autistic people live fulfilling lives. He's like, there's your piece, go. And what was happening is at the time, uh, I don't know if you remember, this was in 2015. If you remember at the beginning of the year, there was that big measles outbreak at Disneyland. Um, and then when I was writing, you know, Donald Trump was starting to run for president. And if you remember, he said that autism has become an epidemic and he blamed the vaccines. And so what that said to me was, I was like, wait, you know, uh, and then of course, Barack Obama had talked about curing autism in like 2013. So what that had told me was, I was like, wait, you know, I grew up in California, you know, those people who don't vaccinate their kids, they're a bunch of liberals and hippies, you know? Uh, they're just crunchy, weird yoga moms who don't want to vaccinate their kids and give them the autism. And then Trump, he may be what a lot of people would call an unorthodox Republican, but he's still a Republican. You know, uh, I think that what happened to me was I was just thinking to myself, um, well, we have a lot of bad information about autism and I'm a political reporter and I'm a journalist who covers autism, who writes about politics. And I was just like, well, if we're getting bad information, then we must have a lot of bad policy about autism. So that piece comes out. And then the next question is, well, what does it look like to be autistic across America? So I kind of hit the road and, you know, try to figure it out, you know, and I went to um, West Virginia. I went to Nashville, Tennessee. I went to Michigan. I went to the Bay Area of California. I went to Pittsburgh. And I did some reporting here in Washington, D.C., where I live. A big part of your book is deconstructing autistic stereotypes. That's the yeah. hitting the road part. Maybe we should start with the stereotypes. Yeah. And then kind of debunk them. How about that? That works. Yeah. Okay. So I, I could go if you want. Like, I could tell you yeah. what I think the stereotypes are. Yeah, go. yeah tell right? me what you think the stereotypes are. Because, like, that, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's Rain Man, 
right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. the big one, which means a, an autistic person uh, is socially um, awkward, um, yeah. uh, repetitive about stuff, uh, a savant perhaps in some yeah. area, uh, avoids eye contact. And also they're all men. They're all white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if I missed anything. If they're good at something, it's probably in a STEM field. And yeah. I'm trying to think of other stuff. Oh, and they're um, they're incapable of empathy. Yes. They're yes. incapable have, of empathy. We have no empathy whatsoever <laughs> Yes. So where do you want to start? So yeah, let's let's go with the Rain Man thing. So like I, you know, I ride Rain Man hard a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that uh, Rain Man didn't even accurately get autism at the time. So if you remember in the movie Rain Man, at the end he goes back to the institution. What's interesting is that the two character, the two people that Dustin Hoffman portrayed his character off of, a guy by the name of Joe Sullivan and another guy by the name of Peter Guthrie, uh, both of them, neither of them were ever institutionalized. Um, They lived with their families. They had loving families and they were never institutionalized. But it was the clinicians and the consultants on the the movie who said, this is unrealistic, Mm. a fairy tale ending. You need to to change this. And yeah, so they changed it, you know. and then on top of that, I think that, so to your point that like a lot of autistic people are uh, only good at like math or STEM or things like that. I got a C in mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> I barely passed. I took a computer coding class because I thought that would be a little bit easier than math. And like, just, just no, like, you know, I, I squeaked by that class with a C minus. Um, you know, uh, I think the other one is, you know, that, that, that it's something that like, everybody's a hyper savant very few autistic people are savants uh i think something there's one study that like back in like the 90s that said it was like only 10 percent of all autistic people are savants uh and then on top of that that they have no empathy that's just ridiculous if anything i would argue that autistic people have more empathy than a lot of other people do um it's just that oftentimes we can't tell or we have trouble reading the social cues or social signals, but that doesn't mean we don't feel anything. That doesn't mean that as soon as we, I mean, you know, as soon as we recognize when we've hurt someone or somebody's going through something, then we immediately feel bad, you know, but uh, I think a lot of times people think, a lot of people misinterpret that as saying that we don't have empathy. Uh, The other one is, uh, yeah, that it, it, uh, that it is, you know, mostly white males, you know, that that's the big one. And that goes back to the beginning. And it goes back to uh, the first study on autism uh, was with 11 kids at Johns Hopkins University, which is not too far from where I live. I live in Washington, D.C. But, um, you know, the the of the 11 children who were first surveyed in a study at Johns Hopkins in 1943, study that came out in 1943, nine of them were white and Anglo-Saxon, two of them were Jewish. And on top of that, eight of them were boys and three of them were girls. Uh, So that was one of the other things. And then also, you know, the idea that autistic people are only able to work in, uh, you know, STEM fields. I work in media, I work in journalism. Uh, And then also on top of that, you know, there are a lot of autistic people who don't live in institutions and can live fulfilling lives outside of institutions. And they should live, you know, they live with their families or they live independently and they can do it. And so I think those are the big ones. And of course, there are many problems with stereotypes in general. Yeah. It's bad to have stereotypes. But one of the particular ways that stereotypes about autism 
have an impact on autistic people, and you write yeah. about this a lot, is that it reduces the chances of someone getting diagnosed yes. and getting proper support. Pro precisely, yeah. So if you think of, because our, our, our ideas of autism are so shaped by this is something that affects white boys, a lot of times girls don't get diagnosed until much later, if they get diagnosed at all. And a lot of times they have to have a coinciding disability or they need to, or they need to have an intellectual disability or they get diagnosed with something else instead of autism. Plenty of times people of color get diagnosed with uh, behavioral disorders or conduct disorders, or they don't just don't get diagnosed at all. Uh, or they get diagnosed later than uh, their um, than their white counterparts. Uh, on top of that, there also a lot of the tools, the diagnostic tools are done solely in English. So a lot of people for whom English is a second language, particularly Latinos or Asian Americans, or even people whose families are from Africa, they often don't get diagnosed until much later. So what happens is that because we have this set idea of who, who can be autistic, we wind up missing a lot of other people. And you delve into this in the book um, a little further, but I'll mention that, uh, especially for people of color, this can be a deadly misdiagnosis yeah. to not be diagnosed with autism, to instead have oppositional disorder, uh, yeah. even ADHD. Um, that creates a situation that, you know, uh, people of color already have to behave perfectly, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But if you are uh, un undiagnosed autistic and yeah. you have interactions with the police, do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, like, I mean, even if you do have a diagnosis, it's not like you can, it's not like that's the first thing the police see, right? Right, right. Uh, the police see your skin color. They don't necessarily know if you're autistic they it's not like you, you know like some places you know now they have a card where you can pull it out uh, and say hey i'm autistic but even then like do you really want to put your hand in your pocket to reach mm -hmm. for your wallet you know if uh especially if you can't speak especially if an autistic person can't speak and if you put your hands in your wallet and you don't signal that of course can lead to very very uh dangerous consequences as well so there's not really um so it could be a really deadly, I'm not speaking out of turn here, the consequences, the consequences can be deadly. Yeah. Uh, and it can lead to police violence. It can lead to people being killed. And it has led to people being killed. Um, you know, even when, you know, there's a big push nowadays to train police officers and how to handle autism. But even then, you know, there was a young man who I profiled in the book, his name is Stefan Watts. Uh, in like a suburb of Chicago, the police were trained on how to deal with him and they still shot and killed him. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this is something that can be trained away. This is something that really, uh, I don't know if this is something that police can or should handle. Yes, there's a lot of debate about this. We yes. shall not get into that debate right now. We're not going to get into that debate right now. <laughs> but that. I think that that's very um, compelling evidence um, for, for a big change in a lot of ways. I, I was thinking also about the misdiagnosis part for people of color, which is that um, 
if an autistic person, a person with autism, however you want to say it, uh, is misdiagnosed and is a person of color, that just feeds the prison, the, the school to prison pipeline, for instance. Yeah. Because the behavior I, issues just become like, oh, you're oppositional. Like, oh, like you just don't obey the rules. Yeah, I wasn't able to go into that that much. I was That, that was something that I thought about much later, but plenty of autistic people have had, especially autistic people of color, have, uh, have bad interactions with the police and, and you're seen as just having a defiant disorder or just seen as having uh, a bad a bad attitude then yeah it probably can contribute to um to very very negative consequences you could probably have very negative consequences so i i absolutely agree i think that it can have deleterious effects and it can lead to people being uh being you know escorted to and from and through whether heather and yonder through the uh the incarceration and the criminal justice system where yeah. there's more of an emphasis on the criminal than there's the justice <laughs> um you mentioned earlier that uh one of the reasons you wrote the original piece has to do with the fact that uh there's this language around curing yeah autism. I want to talk about that in the context of the distinction you make between parental activism yeah. and self-advocacy. And, and yeah. autism kind of has a history with that parental activism. Yeah, it does. I, I really kind of, not even bifurcate, I almost trifurcate. <laughs> Is that even a word? I don't know. Yeah, sure. It's, it, yeah. I, it, I, just, I deem it a word. It's yeah, no, the, um, yeah, but like, you know, I almost trifurcate the, uh, the history of autism advocacy into like three sectors. There's the beginning of it, which is from 1911 when it was first used by Eugen Bloiler, uh, all the way to 1943 with, uh, Leo Connor in Baltimore and, um, Hans Asperger in Nazi-occupied Vienna, uh, all the way to Bruno Bettelheim in the 1960s, there's very much this idea that the clinicians know best. And like someone like Bruno Bettelheim argued that, uh, well, he, he argued that it was caused by unloving parents. And the response, and like what happens when you do that, when you say the parents caused it, the best thing to do is take them away from the parents, right? You know, like, mm. and, and, you know, put them in an institution and, you know, remove the pictures of them, which is literally what happened, you know. Um, and later on, we learned that that was what led to a lot of abuse. You know, we think a lot about something like Willowbrook. That was a very common thing. You know, the, the, those kind of facilities were very, very common. Um, then what happened is I think in the 1960s, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, you saw kind of a pivot from that to parent advocacy. And that was really about parents trying to absolve them of the, themselves of the blame that science had put on them. Um, and that was them trying to get their kids out of the institutions and trying to get their kids to live in their homes. Um, but, and that was, you know, people like, uh, what's his name? Bernard Rimland, who wrote a book called Infantile Autism. Uh, and I think that was what it was called. But um, and then you know someone like Ruth Christ Sullivan, who was the mother of Joe Sullivan, who was the basis for Rain Man, uh, one of the people who Rain Man was based off of. Uh, and these were parents who wanted to you know improve their kids' lives. Uh, but then what happened is there was there was there was even a split then because someone like Bernard Remland wanted an intense focus on cure. He supported a lot of things like changing diet and changing, and he even started you know popularizing. He was one of the big promoters stateside of Andrew Wakefield's um, mm. 
Trump's ideas about vaccines. And I'm just going to interrupt. Andrew Wakefield is notorious for being uh, the charlatan who popularized the link between vaccines and autism. I also want to jump in really quick here because I think it's an important point. So we have the beginning of autism studies, which is squarely, it's like, you you screwed up, parents, yeah. and we're going to take the kids away because you screwed up so badly, and they're so damaged, they can't possibly live on their own, so there. Yeah. And then you have a move that seems like an improvement, and, and maybe yeah. it is an improvement. In some ways it was. Yeah. Where parents are like, in, see, in some ways it's, it's an improvement, in some ways it isn't. It, it's the same thinking of something caused this. Something yeah. caused this problem, and we have to figure out what caused it, and we have to fix it. Yeah. And it wasn't me. <laughs> right? The parents yeah. like, I, I know it wasn't me, and yeah. we have to find the thing that did it. Right? Yeah. And that yeah. was like a dominant way of thinking about autism yeah, for well, a long time. And I think it still is in a lot of in a lot of circles. You know, I think that, you know, in 2016, the federal government and private entities, you know, and private charities spent something like 360 million dollars on autism research and only like two percent went of that money went to lifespan to to, to study like lifespan issues and like something like 30 percent 36 you know more than half of it was either dedicated to either biology or risk factors Mm -hmm. Um, but then a little even more of that budget was spent on um on you know treatments or things like that so there's this kind of intense focus on science and biology and this is i think where you see with something like autism speaks where they spend a ton of money on uh research and on biology uh but then i think what's happened so so let's let's kind of go to the third era which i think what happened is uh in the 1980s uh you know it's important to remember autism didn't get its own diagnosis in the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders until uh, 1980, it was seen as a symptom of schizophrenia oh. under the DSM. So it doesn't get its own diagnosis in the DSM until the DSM-3, I believe. Uh, and in 1980, then you get PDD-NOS, which is pervasive developmental uh, disorder, not other, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. Then you get uh, Asperger syndrome. Uh, after Lorna Wing, who was a British psychiatrist and researcher in the UK translated the works of Hans Osberger, who was, if not a Nazi in name, a Nazi in practice. Let's say problematic person. Yeah. Yes. He's a problematic yeah. person who worked with the Nazis. Yeah, with, yeah. Worked, worked with the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't care what your card says or if you have a card, but if you send kids to a, to a clinic where they die, you know, that's in Vienna, then, you know, yeah, you're basically a Nazi. Yeah. Um, you know, so that happens. And then what also happens is in 1990, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act passes. And more importantly, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act passes. And why is that important? What that said is that, is that the IDEA was basically a reauthorization of the Education for Handicapped Children Act. And what happened is this go around is it said specifically it included autism as a disability. And that was important because uh, that basically said, okay, there are disabled students with disabilities who are entitled to 
a free appropriate public education. Any parent who is listening to this podcast knows what a FAPE is, or <laughs> if, you, if you've ever had an IEP, you know what it is. Um, but it's important because what that meant is that now the schools had to report to the federal government how many children they were serving. So you saw an increase in kids getting services and getting diagnoses. What's happened now is that generation of kids, and I, I include myself in that because I was born in that generation. I was born in 1990. We've grown up now. Um, and what you see now is autistic people now have been able to start their own advocacy networks or advocacy groups. They are now able to protest. They are now able to speak out. They are now able to advocate for themselves. So while I wouldn't say that we've entered a new era where the autistic self-advocates had the main voice, what happens now is that anytime anybody who isn't autistic uh, contends or talks about autism immediately now autistic people have a voice and they can uh, they can uh, or I, should, I shouldn't say they have a voice they always had a voice but now it's that their voice is heard and they can now push back and they now have the means to push back with friends like these is brought to you by helix sleep i got a helix mattress to try out i put it in the guest bedroom i've slept on it a few times and now i'm moving it to my bedroom it's soft, but not too soft. It's luxurious. It's sort of like a hotel bed, if I remember hotel beds correctly. If you want a new mattress, a new Helix mattress, Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody is unique, and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, firm, and mattresses that are good for cooling you down if you sleep hot, and mattresses that are great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. They also have a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. I took the Helix quiz, and I'm a side sleeper. And... Like I said, this mattress is kind of perfect for me. It's soft, but not too soft. And it lets me sink in just enough so that my head still feels supported and my neck is straight on the pillow. If you're looking for a mattress that's perfect for you, take the quiz, order the mattress you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Helix is awesome, but don't take my word for it. Helix was awarded number one best mattress overall pick in 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. Just go to helixsleep.com friends, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights, risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it but you will. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com friends. That's $200 off all orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Monk Pack. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, and let's be honest, they don't taste very good, they don't fill you up, and they don't satisfy your cravings. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. 
Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars contain just one gram of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 140 calories. They're gluten-free, grain-free, plant-based, and non-GMO with no soy, trans fats, sugar alcohols, or high-intensity sweeteners. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle, but you do not have to be on keto to love these. They're the perfect snack for anyone who's trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. I have a bad habit, which is not eat, which means that I have a bar habit. I love having bars around the house, and I love having monk pack bars around the house. The only problem is that it doesn't give me much incentive to remember to eat normal meals because I have these tasty snacks I can dig into anytime. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars have a soft and chewy texture and come in delicious flavors like coconut cocoa chip, peanut butter, and blueberry almond vanilla. One of the best things about them, yes, they're, they're sugary, they're fine, they're sweet, they're, they can be like a candy bar, but... There's no high-intensity sweetener or the aftertaste that's common with other low-sugar items. They're perfect for a quick breakfast, a snack between Zoom calls, or a guilt-free dessert. They taste incredible, and you can't beat the low-sugar nutrition they provide. And by shopping online, you can avoid another trip to the grocery store. And you can get Monk Pack delivered right to your door. To keep fully stocked, sign up for a subscription to your favorite flavors. You save 10% on every order, and they are shipped automatically. Getting these delicious treats delivered to me is helping me eat better. Try it for yourself and you'll see. We have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code WFLT at checkout. Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K, and select any product. Then enter the code WFLT at checkout to save 20 percent off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Smalls. Give your feline friend protein-packed meals they'll crave with Smalls. Smalls is fresh, human-grade food for cats delivered right to your doorstep so you don't have to lift a finger. Kind of like a house cat. All cats are obligate carnivores. They need fresh, protein-packed meals. Conventional cat food is made with profits in mind, using low-quality, cheap meat byproducts, grains, and starches coated in artificial flavors. Smalls, on the other paw, is made with cats in mind. Now, I'm not sure if my kitties really care about the food that I give them because they scarf up everything that I put down, like they're straight off the street, have never eaten before, but... They do seem healthier with smalls. Their coats are softer and their poo is less stinky. It is. Smalls puts your cat's needs first, formulating recipes with leading cat nutritionists to be exactly what all cats need. Quality meat, gently cooked, to be the perfect protein-packed meal. Smalls develops complete and balanced recipes for all life stages with leading cat nutritionists. I love saying cat nutritionist because it sounds like there's cats and lab coats. Starting with human-grade ingredients, like you or I would find at the market, Small's recipes are gently cooked to lock in protein, vitamins, minerals, and moisture. No room for fillers, no need for flavoring. Better quality ingredients mean a better, healthier life for your cat. Since switching to Small's, my cats have experienced improved digestion and a less smelly litter box. Softer and shinier coats and better breath. Go to www.smalls.com friends today to take a short quiz and use code friends to get $5 off your first order. That's smalls.com friends, code friends to get $5 off your first order. Sirius XM radio is better with Bogle wines. 70s on 7, 80s on 8, better with Bogle. 
Alt Nation, Hip Hop Nation, Hair Nation, Better with Bogle, Madison, Howard, Andy Cohen, Better, 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 Y2 Country, Prime Country, Carrie's Country, yep, all better. The Beatles channel is better, and getting better all the time. Everything on Sirius is better with Bogle. Award-winning family-owned wines ranked as some of the finest available for around 10 bucks. As long as you're not driving, it's better with Bogle. Bogle Family Vineyards, Clarksburg, California. Please drink responsibly. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. For the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. I think you just drew this line pretty um, directly, but let's drill down a second because this connection between having support and accommodations in a school and being able to advocate later, right? That's the big change is that for the first time, autistic children are given the tools to be equal, to get a same education and to not be cured, right? Like in in this particular case, it's not like, oh, there's something wrong with you. We're sending you away. It's we're going to support you. Yeah, we're going to support you. We're going to give you the accommodations. And I should be I should be completely clear that this wasn't the windfall. This wasn't. <laughs> right, right, right. Because the federal government was supposed to fund, I think, about 40% of IDEA. It's only funded about like 14.67%, like something very, um, you, you know, and I was thinking back and during the 2020 presidential campaign, a lot of the big, you know, a lot of the Democratic presidential campaigns released disability policies. One of the funny things to me was like one of the, one of the benchmarks they said was, I'm going to fully fund IDEA. And like, that's great. But like, think about how low the bar is. It's considered a landmark thing that, oh, I'm just going to fully fund this thing that was passed 30 years ago. You know, um, uh, and then you had some people like Bernie Sanders saying we're going to increase the amount of the the amount of money that we're going to spend on it. But but, but like, so, so, so all those caveats mentioned. What it essentially did is it said that you are entitled to certain services and we are going to try to um, accommodate you and we're going to try to make sure that you're learning. Uh, and one, one of the things that I, that I often say that I often tell people, and you can appreciate this as a Texan, is one big reason why my mom liked George W. Bush growing up was because we lived in Texas and we got some of the best special education we could have had when Bush was governor of Texas. It's weird. Like Texas does have pretty good, like right. you know, uh, special education and disability support. Like not uh, totally, but yeah. you mentioned this. Like it's a, just an odd little quirk of Texas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like obviously, I haven't been there in a long time, so I can't speak for like Rick Perry or Greg right. Abbott. But I know that, like, I mean, George Bush, of course, his father passed the ADA and the mm-hmm. inside. So there, and then even people I know who lived in Florida say, look, we could talk to Jeb and like, even if we disagreed with him, he'd listen to us, you know, uh, when it comes to Jeb. Who knows? Who Who knows knows? why that happened? So yeah. So like this point is, is that you get this kind of like taste, you get this like fraction of a fraction of accommodations, but it, you know, it fades of a mustard seed, so to speak, you know, it's like this little tiny amount 
allows for this incredible garden of people to, you know, to grow up. And, and, and you think, what more could we do if we fully funded it? You know, right. I also think it's just a shift in thinking about yourself. Right? Yeah. Like if you go to school and you're being even just a little, I mean, even if there's just maybe an attempt to accommodate, yeah. right? like it's a, it's an agency thing. Yeah, you're, you are, you grow up with better sense of agency. The school says you're worth our time and you're worth our money. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that's a powerful message to give to kids. You write in the book that you had a hard time actually asking for accommodations. And that's, that's something I, I, probably important to talk about because we, we, we just celebrated accommodations. (laughs) Yeah. But you yourself had trouble asking for them. Yeah, I mean it's really weird, isn't it? Because I because I I had trouble asking for accommodations all the way through from when I was at community college to when I went to university to when I went to work. When I'm you know, and I think part of it is that the flip side of giving kids some amount but not everything is you're told that well. There are kids who really need the support. And, and, and it's also the problem with using labels like high functioning and low functioning mm-hmm. autism is that if you said, if you arrive at community, even if you go to community college, which a lot of autistic people do, and you seem to do reasonably well in school, you kind of say that like, well, I don't really need accommodations. There are people who really need them, but because I'm here and because I can, you know, get by and I don't, you, you know, I don't need that many accommodations. And it's not, and you, you almost kind of shame yourself if you ask for them um, because you're like, uh, you know, I'm not really disabled. There are people who really need it and I don't want any special. It's why I'm also not a fan of the term special needs because I think mm. it's like special treatment, but I, rather than equal treatment, you know, so, so I think that it was, you know, it leads to a certain stubbornness. And I think that especially if you go through the K-12 system and you see how onerous getting through and getting some kind of accommodations, you're almost kind of just like, look, it's not worth it. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, why even bother? So I think that happens. And then it happens again, you know, when I go to university, because again, it's like, I'm at university, I can't be that disabled, you know, right, uh, right. It, it, it just, which is just some internalized ableist nonsense, you know, um, because, you know, there are plenty of disabled people who go to college and go to university who are otherwise disabled. But because of the way that we think about disability, we're said that, like, there's this idea that disabled people can't go to college or they can't, you know, belong in it or, or they can't, you know, integrate fully. So there's almost this idea that you you shouldn't ask for it because, like, you, you know, you're here, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only after things went crashing down with, like, one of my professors, when I'm like, I tanked the test that I went to one of my professors and it was like literally the weekend, the fr- like the Friday before like fall or like the Wednesday before our fall break was supposed to begin. And I went to him and I was like, I'm disabled. I have autism. I need, to, I, I need help. And then like, he could have easily said, you know, piss off, you know, but what he did is he, I'll never forget this. His name was Dr. David Peer. He was my professor. I was taking an elective class on African music. He called the disability student office and he talked to them for like a few minutes. He said, they're waiting for you. Go. And this was right before fall break. He could have easily said, I'm going, I'm gone, you know. But, you know, I immediately raced down and I went and then, you know, I started using the services that they offered, you know. But that, uh, but like, imagine if it went a different way, you know. Yeah. I think about that all the time, you know, that that's my own kind of personal Marvel what if. Um <laughs> But, but, but yeah, like, I mean, I think about that a lot. And I think there are probably a lot of people like myself 
uh, who think that, well, I must not be too disabled, so I'm not going to ask for accommodations. And they make things unnecessarily harder for themselves. You mentioned high functioning and low functioning. And I've, I've heard before the criticism of, of that distinction or that description. Talk about it, because like you said, people might consider you high functioning, but that's those two poles are really bad way at looking really bad way of looking at autism. Yeah, so I'm not a fan of them because I mean I say this as a journal I say this explicitly I'm not as an advocate activist but just as a journalist mm-hmm. our job is to accurately describe things right you know so I feel like they are inaccurate terms because they don't they describe more what people see about autism mm-hmm. about an autistic person more than what they actually are or more than what they actually need so if you're to say someone is high is low functioning essentially what you're saying is you're saying one of two things one is oh we can't really expect that much from them so we're going to almost be kind of patronizing and paternal paternalizing to them and very paternalist toward them uh or we're just not going to spend that much money and resources on them because they're low functioning so we shouldn't really expect much out of them so fine fine, you know like it's one of those two things you're either super patronized or you're you know ignored so like that's what people say if you're low if you're when they think of you as quote unquote low functioning whereas if they see you as high functioning the response is oh well you don't need that much assistance or you don't need that much accommodation um so therefore uh, we're not going to spend that much money on you. We're not going to accommodate you that much because you're high functioning, you know? Uh, you know, it was funny. Uh, just, just the other day, someone asked me, um, uh, a parent emailed me or, t- or DM'd me and said like, you know, my kid might be autistic. They're grown up, but why should I, why should I get the diagnosis? They seem to be doing fine. And my response is they may look like they're doing fine to you, but they might not be doing as fine as they might be as they would be if they had the accommodations, if they had the services or if they had the diagnosis. And also the parents said like, you know, I don't want my kid to use it as a crutch. And I was like, crutches help people walk and move. Like crutches are great. Crutches are overrated. But because once again, it goes to how ableist society is that we use crutch as an insult. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when when crutches are actually there, you know, if you didn't have a crutch and you had a broken leg, life would suck, you know, <laughs> um, you know, but, 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 but yeah. So like, I think that the terms, so I tend to prefer the terms higher support needs or lower support needs, because I think that that better articulates what autistic people need or what they want rather than what how we see them because there are plenty of autistic people who might come off as high functioning and i interview them in the book you know who have trouble finding employment or have trouble graduating conversely there are some autistic people who might be considered low functioning who uh are able to be successful if we give them the right resources you know so uh and i think so again i don't think it's really accurate because it's based on what neurotypical people see rather than who someone is i want to just dip in real quick about the idea of why get diagnosed yeah because i think for me with my mental illnesses yeah uh 
being diagnosed uh, with bipolar disorder, being diagnosed as an alcoholic was yeah. a way for me to understand what the fuck was happening. Yeah, like, no, that was, <laughs> like, yeah, like I was just like, I was like, it's funny because like I got diagnosed when I was younger, when I was like, you know, they finally got the diagnosis when I was like eight or nine. But like, it wasn't until like I was a teenager and I started seeing documentaries. I think the first time I ever saw something about autism was, you remember that? I mean, I remember you worked for MTV. Did you remember that show, True Life? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, like there was a true life. I'm on the autism spectrum, and like even and then, uh, on top of that, you know, uh, I remember. But the real thing was when they was when I was watching CNN and they had a video of the late Mel Bags and their video in my language, uh, and it was weird because once again, the reason why functioning labels don't work is Mel Bags. A lot of people would probably consider them uh, low functioning, and then I saw them, and I was just like, "Fucking finally, I'm seeing somebody like myself." And, you know, I, I think that what it does is it offers an incredible amount of clarity. And the thing that that's what I said, that was what I said to this, this parent as they said, look, it provides clarity and it provides you an understanding and it provides you relief because now, you know, you're working with and now, you know, how to deal with things and now, you know, what you can and can't do and what you you know like a lot of people say oh well people don't let their someone doesn't let their disability hold me back my disability holds me back from a lot of things and that's okay but there are things that my disability also lets me do that it doesn't let other people do so that's okay too but like i think that it's important to have that clarity and it's you know i it's it's i almost border on saying that it's almost i don't want it's it's almost mean to not if you can to not give that information to someone because like and then, and then also like you know the, the flip side of that is that you know a lot of people on on the internet say that oh well self-diagnosis isn't legitimate or i see a lot of clinicians look down at it but my response is autistic people needing to self-diagnose isn't an indictment of them it's an indictment on psychiatry that you know not enough people believe them so mm-hmm. that's so, so yeah like i mean but i think that once you have those once you have that that clarity of what you are working with, then it allows you to navigate the world better. People are, I think, very used to the idea of accommodations in the physical environment. Yeah. And another really interesting thing about autism is that it's accommodations. Some of them are physical. Some of them are things in the physical environment, like a quieter room. Yeah. But one of your interviewees mentions socially accessible environments like accommodations that might not be physical and and i know that's kind of hard to talk about we don't really have the language for it but could you explain a little about what that might look like yeah i mean i think that one of the i think i think the the clearest example is with workplaces like just giving straightforward instructions and in clear and plain language rather than speaking in metaphors is just one of the easiest things that you can do uh the same thing when it comes to um um, you know, just kind of explaining abstract concepts in university and in colleges, you know, like I remember one time I was taking a cinema class for a, uh, for an elective and when I was a community college and then like they kept on trying to explain these really esoteric concepts. Then finally, after class, I went to one of my professors and I said, look, I don't understand what the hell this is. You need to be fucking clarifying about it, you know, um, and then later, and then I said, I'm autistic. And then he says, oh, uh, he mentioned he had a loved one who was autistic. And then once that happened, then he was a, he 
he was able to explain things clearer to me and that was what made things that was what allowed me to get an A in the class you know so I think once again it's you know it's it's weird to I think that because a lot of people aren't used to or not familiar with invisible disabilities they're not familiar with uh, maybe invisible accommodations, so to speak. That's a really, I love that term. I like that idea. It's invisible disabilities and invisible accommodations. It yeah, totally makes yeah. sense. Let's talk about uh, normalizing this invisible disability when it yeah. becomes a little more visible. Yeah. Uh, because there are things that uh, can come with autism Yeah. that may seem unusual. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would really love it if people could not think that was weird. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> and what kinds of things would that be? Like what, yeah. what is, what needs to be normalized? I think one thing that needs to be normalized is stimming, you know, um, and re to the what is stimming? Yep. Stimming is self-stimulatory behavior. I think a lot of people see it as distracting or they see it as like this thing that needs to be pathologized when really a lot of times stimming, whether it be rocking back and forth or fidgeting with your hands or fidgeting with, with the fidget toy um, is really just a way to adjust to your environment and to process the sense, you know, what's going on sensory wise around you. Uh, I think that's something that needs to be normalized. I think that while nobody likes having a meltdown, having an autism meltdown, I think one of the things that's important is to recognize that it's a response to stimuli from outward stimuli. And instead of patronizing or instead of punishing the autistic person for having a meltdown or using restraint or pressing someone down or you know, using force, what needs to be done is needs to be what needs to be addressed is what's causing that outward stimuli to overwhelm someone. I think that, um, you know, being, um, you, you know, I think that other people need to normalize um, sometimes speaking through nonverbal communication, you know, or, or, or turning subtext or reading in between the lines into text, you know, uh, and being as explicit as possible. I think those are some things that need to be normalized and, uh, and accommodated toward. And I think that also the other thing that needs to be accepted is uh, and normalized is not speaking with your mouth. You know, I think one of the things that I had to shed when I was writing this book is because I think as journalists, we're told that uh, if you send someone, if you email someone questions before the interview, that scene is almost like they're going to have a time to prepare. They're going to have, you know, give you a really process response. That's definitely true of politicians. But <laughs> a lot of times, you know. Uh, or, or that that kind of ruins the kind of uh, the free flowing nature of a conversation that allows you to say things. But I think with autistic people, what I learned is if they can't speak, that's the only way you're going to talk to them. You know, and I and I otherwise wanted to talk to a lot some autistic. I couldn't have you know included some voices if I didn't you know send emails email questions. And then for some that did speak, it allowed them, it gave them the time to prepare so that they could give me a fuller and more clarifying and more holistic answer than they otherwise wouldn't have because a lot of these people weren't familiar with talking with the press or talking with journalists or talking with other types of people so that it gave them the time to prepare. So I think those are the things that, I, that, that need to be normalized as well is that there are many different valid types of communication and none of them are less valid than the other. I'd like to talk a little bit more about meltdowns because something about it really resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I can get real squirrely yeah, if I'm in an environment with too much stimuli. Yeah. 
And for me, it's like a shutting down kind of yeah. thing. And I just have to get out of there. Just like, yeah. it's like a fit. It's almost like agoraphobia, like yeah. just let to leave. Right. Yeah. And I think we're all now familiar with the idea of I can't even. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you talk about how for an autistic person, it really is an incapacitating yeah. thing. Yeah. It's, it's all encompassing. It's like you literally, you will forget the ability to speak sometimes. You just literally kid your, your, your esophagus and your vocal cords just literally can't, you know, put together words. Your brain just gets disconnected from your vocal cords and it just, you just start feeling clammy and you just, and like, I think a lot of people mistake it for like a temper tantrum when really it's just like, no, I, this is, this is a response of my body is just telling me I can't do this anymore. And it was interesting. There's this one woman I follow on Twitter. Uh, but when, one thing that she said to me that really hit me like a ton of bricks was when she said, a meltdown is a form of communication. I was like, no fucking way. I had never thought of it that way. But like, yeah, it is. It's your body telling you this is too much. And it's your body telling other people, I need to go, you know. But it's just as valid. And I think a lot of people patronize people who have meltdowns. But it's a legitimate response. And it's your the way your brain is wired. It's That's your brain's fight or flight response or to your brain's response to say this is a bad environment we need to go but for some reason because it is presented in an outward way that we're not familiar with we kind of almost patronize or punish the person who is just having a natural response that's a natural response and nobody likes having meltdowns but more than that is that like it's important to recognize that this is going to happen and what are you going to do to make sure that these don't happen and also, do you have a response for when it does happen? You know, so like, you know, my friend AJ, who I profile in the book, he's just like, he has a friend just turn on Carl Sagan's pale blue dot when he's feeling overwhelmed, you know, you know, so some people have, so, so, you know, have a plan for when this happens, you know, so. And it's another uh, form of accommodation, right? Yeah, because it is. when you were writing about different levels of support, I don't even call them levels, let's say different kinds of support, right? Yeah. Uh, that some people can live independently pretty much. Yeah. But for instance, you profile one woman who at the end of the day, she needs someone to kind of just like do some stuff for her because it's been so much, Yeah. right? It's just been so much for her. She goes in, I, I guess it's not a meltdown because it's not, you know, outward, yeah. but it's this incapacitating fatigue, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. It is. I think that it's, uh, you know, it, it is totally, and it's not even and like the other thing is that that's not a bad thing. Like to have a support homeworker to help you do that. Uh, you know, I talked with my, you know, Julia Bascom was the person. She is the head of a very big autism nonprofit here in Washington, D.C., the Autistic Self Advocacy Network. And she needs that. And it's not a but or despite, it's a because these things allow you to do other things. And I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of these accommodations aren't things that limit you. They're the things that they're, they're the because. They're the raison d'etre. They're the reason you can do these things. And that's totally okay. And I think that we should accept them because they, they without it, people wouldn't be able to function, you know, or wouldn't be able to move through the world, you know. 
With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Growing up, cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid, um, but at some point, I just stopped eating breakfast. And I still don't really eat breakfast, but I love Magic Spoon. Some days, it allows me to have breakfast just at noon or eight or midnight, whenever I need to start my day over. And other times, I eat it out of the box because I can. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving, and only 140 calories. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can build your own box on the website. The available flavors are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and maple waffle. Cookies and cream and maple waffle started out as limited edition flavors, and they sold out when they were in limited edition. They are now back permanently. You are going to want to try them. They're delicious and indulgent. And I will give you my favorite pro tip about Magic Spoon, which is mix up the flavors. Cocoa and peanut butter, peanut butter and cinnamon, cinnamon and cocoa, cookies and cream and cocoa. You get the idea. It's like getting exponentially more flavors. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. Be sure to use our code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash friends and use code WFLT to get $5 off your order. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. With Friends Like These, it's brought to you by Ritual, the multivitamin company you know and trust. Protein powders can feel intimidating because they seem made for bodybuilders or opaque because you don't understand the ingredients in them. But the truth is, deep down, at the cellular level, we all need protein. And it's about more than just muscles. So Ritual's team of scientists reimagine protein powder from the ground up and inside out from how it's made to who it's for. The result is a delicious plant-based protein offered in three premium formulations for distinct life stages and unique nutrient needs, all made with the same high standards approach and commitment to traceability that Ritual is known for. Whether you're doing reps or going for dog rocks, introducing Essential Protein, here to shake things up. I will say about essential protein, number one, yes, it is straightforward. Like, it, I understand why it's made, who it's for, and what's in it. I also like that it's a pure vanilla flavor, and it doesn't have that artificial taste that so many protein powders have. Also, you can do just about anything with it. You can make a shake with it. You can put it in oatmeal. You can put it in yogurt. However it is you want to get your protein, you can use protein powder. You deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why. With Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain, you know what's in Ritual formulas, where the ingredients come from, and why they're included. For tomorrow, as much as today, Ritual is made with nutrients to support bones, brains, and muscles and help maintain muscle mass as you age. With no added sugar or sugar alcohols, and like all Ritual products, essential protein is soy-free, gluten-free, and formulated with non-GMO ingredients. So why not shake up your Ritual? To make trying something new less scary, Ritual offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love. Plus, my listeners get 10% off during your first three months. Just visit ritual.com slash friends to add a essential protein today that's ritual.com slash friends serious xm radio is better with bogle wines 70s on 7 80s on 8 better with bogle alt nation hip-hop nation hair nation better with bogle madison howard andy cohen better 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 y2 country prime country carries country yep all better the beatles channel is better and getting better all the time everything on Sirius is better with bogle 
Award-winning family-owned wines ranked as some of the finest available for around 10 bucks. As long as you're not driving, it's better with Bogle. Bogle Family Vineyards, Clarksburg, California. Please drink responsibly. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. With blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. All right, so coming back. You write in the book about all autistic gatherings. There's yeah. an autistic retreat. Yeah. What is that? That was such an interesting thing. I compare it to almost, so I'm Mexican-American, but I've never been to Mexico. (laughs) Uh, Like a lot of Mexican-Americans, I'm pretty assimilated. And it was almost at one point, I was initially hesitant when I first went. Then midway through, I was like, okay, I think I get this. Then what I realized is that, oh, these people are all kind of like me. Or, oh, these are people who are, they're different from me, but I noticed some similarities. And I want to say by the middle of the second day, I realized that this was like going back to a home country that I'd never visited before. And I realized that because there were no other, there were no neurotypicals there, you know, or I think there was like one parent there and that was it. But like, it was all autistic people. And at some point or another, we re- I recognized that we were all kind of just being ourselves in a way that the world doesn't allow us to. And it was funny because I remember somebody else at another event I went to said that if you ever want to cure autism, just put a bunch of autistic people in a room together. <laughs> <laughs> And it was fascinating because I realized that we were, you know, stimming and rocking back and forth and we were allowing each other to kind of info dump about our favorite stuff. And we were able to, you know, the idea that autistic people don't have any emotions, like autistic people can be just as loving and affectionate and as loud and I'm not, you know, and laugh as hard and, you know, be just as raunchy as neurotypical people and can be just as vulgar, uh, <laughs> vulgar, um, you know, uh, and we were allowed to be our whole completely wonderful and beautifully fucked up selves, you know, just like every other human being is, you know, I think everybody is a combination of fucked up and wonderful, you know, and often one reinforces the other, you know. Um, and it is really wonderful to be in the same place as, as people who are fucked up like you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Has the same flavor yeah. of fucked upness. And when, I, and when I say that, I don't say it as like we're bad because we're autistic. And it's just that like, you know, we're, you know, we've been, we've been beaten like, my Cal Montgomery, who I interview in the book, he told me, he's like, you know, we don't know what autism looks like. We know what autism with trauma looks like. So we see other people who've been fucked up by in one way or another by the world because the world just doesn't understand us. And in the same way, we can kind of kind of be gentle with each other mm-hmm. and we can be kind with each other and we can realize that we're not we're not screwed up. We're not bad because we're autistic. We've, we've been beaten up and we've been banged up a little bit because of. um, Well, the challenges of the world. By by, by the cruelty of the world. Yeah. Yeah. But we're okay. But, but we're okay. And you're okay. And it allows you. And going away from that event, I remember feeling like I can be kinder to myself after Mm -hmm. this, you know, 
uh and that you know and like i want to be you, you know just just between your nails like i hope that like when people listen to that phrase that you include the whole of it because i don't want people to think that autistic people are fucked up you know? i was gonna say i i mean fucked up with love yeah exactly. uh, i mean yeah. i, I yeah. sometimes the way i describe you know myself uh, is you know my brain just doesn't work in the same way yeah, that yeah, other exactly. people's do yeah and so, you could see that as fucked up yeah I mean and, and okay fine like yeah. I, I, whatever it's just different yeah it's, but like you know but like I think what I want like what was fascinating and like what, what came after that event is I was just happy it was it was a lot like don't get me wrong it was a lot because it was like nothing I'd ever experienced and I was there to work you know um, but also I met so many incredible people who I quote and I interview in the book from that event. And it was like, wow, these are, these are incredible people. And it's funny because it's like my friend, John Marble, who I also profile in the book, who like, he was one of my favorite people to profile in the book. Just it, it, when you read in the chapter about work, um, he says being autistic is a lot like being French. And he says that, like, you know, a fashion designer in Paris is going to be very different from a Catholic nun in Bordeaux. But if you if they sit down for, you know, baguettes in the Champagne region, they will have this kind of esprit de corps and this understanding of each other as Frenchmen and Frenchwomen that uh, that transcends where they live and their temperament and all that, that, that they, they have this understanding as be, of being French. And in the same way, one of the things I noticed when I was writing this book that I can, that I can unequivocally say is how amazing is, is that like, there were these, yes, autism, I, I want to be explicit. Autism is as varied and as diverse as the people who have it. But at the same time, there are these through lines and there are these common threads that tie us all together. And you realize, wow, for the longest time, you just thought you were defective or you were weird because of this. But then you realize there's there's like, you know, 10 million other people like you. And that's weirdly comforting, you know? Yeah. I love what you said about how being um, with a group of other autistic people and kind of embracing your specific kind of different wiring yeah right uh helps you be kinder to yourself and that makes me think of something i learned in your book that i completely blew me away which is that some studies suggest that uh autistic people are overrepresented in the lgbtq community yeah and you have a kind of theory about that right yeah well i don't even know if it's my theory it's what other autistic people say that like you know, because like I, I interviewed this wonderful person, Charlie Garcia Spiegel. He's just fantastic. He's autistic and he's trans and he's Latino. And like we were, we were talking at that retreat and like we were talking and then like midway through, I realized, you know, he was telling me, he's like, I think that because a lot of autistic people see gender norms and sexual norms as a social norm and because those are kind of a second language to us were allowed to kind of question it. And it was like, he was trying to, you know, think of the right word. And then I almost kind of correct. I almost kind of finished the sentence where I was like, kind of see that it's bullshit. And he's like, yeah, it's kind of like, <laughs> like yeah. Cause it's like, cause even look, I am as cisgender and heterosexual as they come, but even I don't feel comfortable with masculine gender norms. You know, I just, I'm just, I just don't feel comfortable with them. So I can totally see how if you are 
trans or queer or lesbian or gay or bisexual or whatever, anything else, that if you already don't feel like you fit in and you feel like these social norms are already constricting for you, that you would realize that, wait, we prescribe these kind of social and sexual gender norms for a lot of other things and why should we belong to them and why should we conform to them? And it's why, you know, I often joke that whenever I go, I only say it kind of half jokingly, but it's, you know, half serious that like whenever I go to these events, um, I'm usually one of the only straight cisgender heterosexual guys people there you know and it's and like that's absolutely true because so many times there are so many fantastic people and i think what it shows me is that like the same the other thing that i say is that like the same impulse that forces the world to want to make gay people more straight straighter or trans people behave more cis is the same impulse that wants to make autistic people behave more neurotypically rather than accepting them for who they are and accepting their them for all their flaws and accepting them for all the beauty that they have um you know those are those are you know those they're the same impulses they literally share the same dna the 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 clinic that started applied behavioral analysis was started by a guy named olave or lovas he's also the person who started ucla's feminine boy project which was basically (laughs) Version therapy so like it was so literally the same dna you know so, um yeah, in, the, in in that in that he was trying to correct both yeah, types of things like yeah. his approach to autism and his approach to queerness was oh that's something we gotta fix yeah exactly yeah. It, was beha- it was behaviorism yeah, it was yeah. Behaviorism. i think this leads us rather naturally into a discussion of autism and sex yeah, uh, we can also say relationships if you want. You know, sex is no, a no, but because uh, there's stereotypes around that, right? Yeah, no, like I mean, one of the things because a lot of people think that autistic people are uh, are asexual or don't, and not to say that there aren't autistic asexuals. I know some autistic asexual people, and you know, God bless. But also, I know some autistic people who are ten times hornier than. <laughs> <laughs> there are some horny people you know it's like and it's like you know i've dated uh i've dated neurotypical women and i've dated autistic women and i've dated you know non-binary autistic femme people you know and uh you know like i gotta say that it's that the idea that they don't want to have a romantic life or they don't want to have a sex life i'm sorry i uh from personal experience from very nuanced field research i can say that uh that that's not the case you don't have to go into detail. No, I'm not. I will going take your word for it. I'm, not going, I'm, not going into I'm just saying that. I'm just saying that it is. Uh, I'm just saying that, like, it is. It always. And again, it goes to this kind of fear about disabled people being sexual, and it's this fear of them reproducing, and it's this fear of them uh, having some kind of autonomy and some kind of capacity to control their lives and to control their bodies and but like you know autistic people you know like i said there's some who may not want to date or have sex and that that's cool you know fine you know do that but like uh, in there are neurotypical people who are like that you know but you know in the same respect you know autistic people should be allowed to date and have sex and marry and have kids and things like that you know that's totally something that is it's a normal part of the human experience and why wouldn't uh, autistic people some autistic people want to experience that you know you say in the book that you wanted to initially at least and i pretty much do in the book avoid it 
becoming too much of a memoir. Yeah. And yeah. I, I get it. Uh, you say you don't want it to be a self-narrating zoo exhibit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I took that idea from Jim Sinclair. Um, and, I, like, and I don't have anything against autism memoirs. Some of them are fantastic. I'm reading one right now. Uh, when her book hits stateside, you should really have Sara Gibbs on here. Her book, Drama Queen, is just just a delight. Um, um, you should. She's just, she's just hilarious. We were DMing this morning. Um, but... Uh, you, you know, I also worry that sometimes when you do these kind of memoirs, that they almost individualize the autistic experience, or they say that this, oh, look at this really inspiring autistic person, rather than I think what I saw myself as more of a set piece within a larger narrative. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to contextualize my experience. And I think also just my general, I think this is the benefit of having been a been a newspaper reporter for better or for worse for the majority of my career is that just is just, just being generally curious is that like anytime I wanted to write about myself I would just be like but is that indicative of a larger trend is this kind of this you know is this is this a real thing or is this a thing you know or and then you know literally what I would do is I would look it up or I do it you know I just try to corroborate that and I'd be like oh this might be a thing and then I'd be like well let me talk to some more people or let me see if I can get more people to talk about this so I guess maybe it's just my general impulse to be curious and my general impulse to just be skeptical of my own experience that led that lead, led me to want to do more about that but I, I you know that was what really was the driver for that I am very curious about how your autism uh impacts your journalism and your and your career yeah because I, I I thought about this when you mentioned how autistic people can recognize gender norms and, and sex norms as the norms. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, that's a way of calling bullshit, right? Yeah, it is. It's a way of calling bullshit. And so as you as a reporter, do you think your autism helps you call bullshit? Absolutely, it does. <laughs> if, uh, you know, if I feel like somebody's not answering the question. I'm going to get, you know, I'm on, literally I'm talking to you from the third floor of the Capitol. You know, the, I don't know if you ever were a reporter on the Capitol, but like, you know, I'm, I'm in that little press gallery that they have in the house, you know, like, and, and you know, literally to, later today, I'm going to be talking with members of Congress about the government shutdown and the infrastructure bill. And like, sometimes I'll get really peeved off if I feel like they're giving me a, you know, filtered, um, not answer answer and i'm or, or like I, I used to get like you know when i when i started out in my career you know i remember back in like 2015 when i was covering elizabeth warren a lot because i used to cover financial regulation and then that turned into was she gonna run for president she should just never talk to reporters and i remember getting really like almost they've been interested they'd be like why does she want to talk to me then i almost get kind of offended i'd be like you're a senator damn it you know like you 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 should be answering questions, you know? So like, I, I generally feel like sometimes politeness is for suckers, you know? You know, you now sometimes that's led me to bad things. Like one time when I followed a senator in the men's room, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're not, it, so it, like, it would just be very clear. Like what I think I'm hearing is like, because you see norms as norms and like you can sort of choose to obey them or not yourself. Like yeah. you're just like, I'm here for the story. I don't care what other people think. Yeah. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to follow the guy into the men's room because yeah. I'm I I can put the story first, and yeah. I don't have a 
opinion about what people think about me. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really care. So you, you know, my feeling is usually like I used to get really, really defensive when people didn't like the story that I did. Do then, like I don't know, just like oh, they're gonna be like a baby. You gotta let them cry a little bit, and then you, and then you, you know, you, you. Um, I don't know how good of a parent that would make me, but like I mean, like you know, it's like you know, let them walk it off. They'll, they'll they, you know. They need you as much as you need them. Fuck them. So you know, like that 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 kind of attitude is is still. I think that 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 kind of is that kind of feeling that like, you know, if you're not gonna tell the truth, then I'm gonna be a jerk to you. I, I love think it. I, I think that's. I think that very much is an asset for me. You know, like, you know, anytime. Uh, you, you know, I write about it in the book when I asked like in the opening of the book, I asked somebody if they were going to run for president when they were in Iowa. And like, they gave me kind of a non-answer answer. And I was just like, like later on, I walked around, I was like, that's kind of a bullshit answer. You know, <laughs> like, you, you know, I still, I, I generally don't like it when people give kind of a cookie cutter answer for something. And they think it's the safe thing rather than telling the truth. So you intentionally steered away from too much memoir. Yeah. But. Yeah. I know that writing this book changed you. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Please, please talk about that. I think, again, to the point about, like, you know, um, I think when I started, I think when I, when you're growing up as a teenager, you don't, you have this kind of idea that you don't, you don't know what, even if you have a diagnosis, you don't care about the diagnosis label. You care about the diagnosis label that the kids in the schoolyard are giving you, you know? And oftentimes it's, a lot more cutting than anything a doctor can tell you, you know? Um, and you, and, and that kind of sets you, that's kind of sets you to think that, okay, well, I'm not going to have a really stable, you know, life, you know, I'm going to really, you know, or I'm going to always have difficulty with making friends or I'm always going to have a difficulty or like, it's going to be something that, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, if I want to get married, I'm still in the fence about getting married and having kids, but like, that's going to be really hard. Um, sorry, mom. Uh, you, you know, uh, you, you know, like you, you have these kind of ideas that, um, that, you know, if you're going to be autistic and you're going to be okay with being autistic, you're going to have to be okay with losing some stuff or like some things just aren't going to be there for you. Like having a full stable and fulfilling career or having a full and stable and enjoyable romantic life or having full friends or, or, or even feeling connected. And, and I think also, so I think that was the thing is that like, I met plenty of autistic people who have wonderful fulfilling lives with good jobs or with marriages, or even the ones who had difficulty doing, you know, who had difficulty graduating or living, they somehow find a way to make, to live good lives. And they're somehow still good people and they're still wonderful to be around and they're still amazing. And I think the other thing that it changed, so I think that happened. I think it allowed me to be kinder to myself. And I think the other thing is that when I first started writing about autism, I used to worry that I was the wrong kind of autistic. I worried that like, because I didn't know enough about the history, I didn't know about this, or I didn't know about that. Uh, it's kind of a lot of like my anxieties being Mexican-American. Like I don't speak fluent Spanish. Uh, I don't, I've never been to Mexico, as I've said, you know, I, I don't know a lot about, you know, that I've just never felt that kind of kinship. I was born in the Midwest. You know, I grew up in California and Texas, but like, you know, like I never had that understanding. But then like when I, I think what I realized is that there's no, just like there's no right way to be Latino, there's no right or wrong way to be autistic. So I think that's one thing that's, that's kind of changed. You end the book or sort of begin to wrap up uh, with a quote from Frederick Douglass. Yeah. 
I should say Adam Sura gave me that quote. So, so I had to it's a it. great quote. Uh, I will read it and then please talk about the way that you relate it. What I ask for the Negro is not benevolence, not pity, not sympathy, but simply justice. And he concluded his remarks by saying, what shall we do with the Negro? Do nothing with us. Yeah, I love, I mean, Frederick Douglass is one of my heroes. Um, because that might sound weird to people, right? Like, do yeah, nothing with us. But, yeah. but what, do, what does it mean for you? What it means is that I think a lot of times autistic people are treated as a problem that needs to be fixed. Their very existence is, you know, to borrow from another great American intellectual, W.B. Du Bois in his book, The Souls of Black Folk. When, when people encounter you, it's all, there's almost this, is this implicit question of what is it like to be a problem in America? You know, and the same way I feel like when you're being autistic, there's a there's all this push to find solutions or to fix this, and not enough on what do you what do autistic people want and need, and how do we help you do that? What do we do? Because Douglas wasn't saying like don't don't do anything, like don't do it. You, you know, he talked about wanting you know, you know, work, and he wanted you know you know ways to empower freedmen and freedmen freed women but like he didn't want people them treated like a social issue to be championed that he wanted them to be treated like people and i think that what my biggest response is that give us give autistic people what they need so that they can determine their own destiny increase their because to me what freedom is and you know I, I think maybe it might be the latent influence of growing up with a republican dad is you know Freedom is the ability to choose your destiny and choose the option to create your own choices. So what I want is where I want autistic people to have the ability to choose whatever they want. And I want, and I don't want them to be prescribed something. I don't want their destiny to be pre-written for them. I want them to be able to have all the opportunities that neurotypicals do. My sister and I, my sister is neurotypical. And I want, what I basically say is I want, my sister to have the same stuff I have, the same opportunities that I have, and vice versa. And my mom did that. And even though, and then, you know, conversely, my, my sister and I, we couldn't be more different in a lot of ways. But we were given the same options and the same choices to do whatever we wanted, and we, you know, were able to do it. So that's basically what I said. Many thanks to Eric Garcia, who is the Washington correspondent for The Independent and the author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. A great mind-opening read, about neuroatypical minds. This show is a product of Crooked Media. Andy Gardner-Bernstein is our producer. Patrick Antonetti is our editor. Take care of yourselves. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. 
So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.